Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, and it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whatever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled out, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. 
But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The word of the Lord. Thank you. All right, just to remind you again, the sermon challenge is uh, in the back. It's for anybody uh, really still in the, in the room, but uh, we are having a, a friendly competition. As you listen to the uh, sermon, there are different things that you can uh, answer, and uh, we'll keep track of those scores as the semester goes on, and uh, top scores uh, may very well end up with a prize. So we'll have a category for uh, elementary, middle school, and high school. So uh, it's wide open right now. So anyways, hope you'll take uh, advantage of that. Uh, my family and I have uh, become hooked on a, a new show uh, called Nailed It um, on, on Netflix. Anybody seen the show Nailed It? Anybody know what, what it is? All right. Well, it's, it's, it's pretty fun. Uh, the idea of the show is that they bring in these just average, uh, non-expert uh, household bakers uh, who may or may not like to bake, and they bring them in in front of a, a panel of judges and an expert uh, chef baker who has made one of these just elaborate, uh, detailed, um, out-of-this-world uh, bakery creations that you just marvel at and wonder how it could be made of cake. And the challenge is for these amateur bakers to, in a period of time, to make this creation and then be judged on it. And the comedy of it is they fail it every time. They just cannot even come close. And so the whole show involves these three judges, these expert chefs, watching these uh, hapless little uh, bakers in these kitchens trying to make these creations. And at the end, uh, the, the, the results are just comically bad. Uh, they are so far from nailing it that they just utterly fail it. And they have to stand there and, and listen to these expert chefs explain all the errors that they have made. And as I've been watching this show, it's hilarious, it's fun, but uh, I recognize that for many of us, it, it may parallel our view of life, uh, that we have been brought into this world, we've been raised up, we've been given uh, the, the ideals of what we are to do and how we are to live, what a, what a perfect family looks like, what it means to be successful in our job, uh, what it means to be successful in, in marriage, and it feels like we're amateurs all on our own trying to nail this thing called life, and in one way or another, failing. Just our creations, our efforts are, are showing up, failing through anxieties, through mishaps, through broken relationships. And, and perhaps we feel like we just have this, this judge above us who's just looking down, just noting every single way we're failing it, so that on the last day we will stand in front of him and he will say, well, look, this is the cake, this is the life that you were supposed to live, and look at what you have created, look at the mess that you are. Do you guys ever think about life like that? That we are just driving ourselves towards a final exam where we will fail it, and we will be held up next to a perfection, and we know even now, it crushes us even now knowing we're failing it. Doesn't matter what the what the icing looks like underneath us, we are a mess. Perhaps you are here today just living with a fail it 
experience. You're, you're dealing with failure in relationships, in your career. Perhaps you're failing it with belief. How can I believe? Help my unbelief. There is just doubt that racks you day in and day out. And you don't understand how the person next to you just seems to have it all figured out. Maybe you feel like you're failing it in belief. Maybe you're in despair. Maybe you are just failing it because so much is overwhelming you. You can't see a way out. You can't see a happy ending. Your life is darker. Your thoughts are darker. Maybe you think you're still nailing it. Maybe you are in this room right now saying, you know what? Up to this point, I am kicking it. Everybody I look next to, I am, I am excelling. I've got it together. I've got the perfect Facebook page. But what's ahead? What happens when the job is lost? What happens when you make the mistake? What happens when the marriage gets bumpy? What happens when the kids go through trouble? We all know that at some point, our record, our role is going to come to an end. We're going to go from nailing it to failing it. It's in our DNA. It's in our anxiety every single day. Someday, it's going to come down. Well, that's why I'm glad you're here this morning. Because there is good news in this passage. In this passage, we discover something so beautiful. We discover that the gospel that we have is a gospel that tells us our Lord came down. He didn't stay at the judge's bench. He comes down. He comes down into our messes. He comes down into our despairs. He comes down into our failures. And because he comes down, we have hope. In fact, as we look at this passage, I want us to see that there are three comforts that all disciples of Christ have because Christ came down to us. Christ came down to us, and because of that, we can hold on to three comforts that will, that will buoy us up in this life. And I think it is so important that we come to these comforts, especially after last week where we have started this uh, look at the second half of Mark. We recognize that Mark has, has reached its, its hinge point. After Peter has confessed that Christ is the Lord, uh, we suddenly turn directions from living in Galilee where all these different miracles are happening to suddenly moving south towards Jerusalem, towards the end the crucifixion and the resurrection. And as we make that turn, we saw last week that Jesus started giving some very difficult words about what's ahead, some very difficult words about discipleship. In fact, we saw last week that there were three crucial deaths that every disciple has to go through to experience the life of the gospel. And those deaths are, are hard. They're steep. And so right here... In the grace of God, after we recognize that there are deaths that we have to go through, we recognize that there are also comforts that we receive as we take in the gospel. In this passage, let us now see those three comforts that every disciple has because Christ came down. The first comfort that we have because Christ came down is this. We will finish in glory. 
we will finish in glory. And here we are looking at this magisterial and bizarre passage that is called the Transfiguration. Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. So the disciples have just been given these incredibly difficult commands. Let me uh, remind you that the, the basic is that they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And those were not uh, flowery language. Those were not flowery words. Those had a literalness to them. Jesus was taking on a literal cross, and he was telling his disciples, if you follow me, if you go in my footsteps, you will take up a cross. You will take up suffering. You will experience a hard path. So after these very difficult discipleship lessons, Jesus says these words in verse 1. He said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now that, that verse, often as we read in our uh, Bibles, is uh, confusing to us because the kingdom of God come in power and this promise that the some standing there will not taste death, we, we often look at that and say, well, where is that fulfillment? Where did some standing there not taste death before they saw the kingdom of God come with power? Well, the, the great thing about the Bible is when you have a question, just keep reading. The Bible wants to give you the answer. And the Bible doesn't wait for you very long to get the answer to this question. Verse 2 is meant to be that answer. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. So here we have three people that were in the audience hearing this command that some will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God with power being taken up a mountain where they are seeing Jesus in his display of resurrection, full glory. Where they are seeing the kingdom of heaven with power manifested before them. So the, 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 the story of Mark wants us to recognize that the transfiguration represents, is a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven come with power that was given to us in the middle of history to see what is the end for all who continue the path of discipleship. So Jesus is taking these three up and they see Jesus transfigured. It's a mysterious passage. I mean, what is the transfiguration? Most simply, we see that it is a glimpse of the kingdom that has come with power. It is a revelation of the heavenly reality of Jesus. And because of that, it's, it's indescribable. You, you read this passage and you're like, say a little bit more. Say that a different way. Explain this, because it is just bizarre. Uh, in fact, if you look at the Greek, the word that we have for transfigured is just metamorphosis. Okay, metamorphosis into what? Metamorphosis how? Metamorphosis like, what did that look like? It's a, it's a word that just brings questions. Something about Jesus' appearance changed. Something about his, his uh, uh, presence was altered. But we can't exactly say what it was. I, I love how Mark tries to explain this in earthly language. In verse 3, he says, He was radiant 
like absolutely no fuller could bleach anything. I mean, if you used all the bleach in the world, you couldn't make this guy look as radiant and as, as stunning and as splendid as he was. Uh, but, but the whole idea that we're thinking about uh, taking his clothes to the laundromat just shows you what, uh, what a limit we have in trying to make sense of what is going on here. It is clear, I think, as you look at the passage, that uh, the transfiguration is meant to, to echo and remind us of God's work at Mount Sinai back in the book of Exodus where Moses goes up the mountain and receives the Ten Commandments. There are several parallels in this passage. There's the cloud that comes down and covers. There's the voice. There's the fact that Moses came down with a shining face. Jesus becomes shining in his presence. Additionally, down below at the bottom of the mountain, there's just terrible failure. Israel is failing, going, making an, a, a golden calf. As we will see later in this passage, the disciples are down at the bottom just making a mess of everything. So there's a lot of parallels here. And I think for that, we should recognize the significance of the transfiguration. You see, at Mount Sinai, Moses was establishing the Old Covenant. In the Mount of Transfiguration, we recognize that Jesus is the one who brings the new covenant. This is the coming of the kingdom with power. Why? Why did this event happen here? Why why does Jesus reveal himself here in this magisterial way? I believe there are two things going on in the narrative that, that make the transfiguration necessary at this point. First, it's going to confirm Peter's confession. He said, you are the Christ, but all of this words about going to a a cross, being killed, being rejected, uh, that doesn't fit with the understanding of what a Christ is. And so this transfiguration, this revelation of Christ in glowing majesty from heaven reminds and confirms Peter's confession. But more importantly, The transfiguration represents for us the lens that we must use to understand the rest of this gospel. It is the lens that we must use to see and interpret correctly the rejection, the forsakenness, the cross, and the tomb that is going to meet Jesus at the end of this story. You see, all of the events that happen in Jerusalem, they do not come upon him as a tragedy. They do not come upon him as somebody who, who met his end at the, at the hands of a more powerful system. He goes there from the Mount of Transfiguration because he is making himself a sacrifice for the sins of the world. The one who goes to the cross is the one who is transfigured on the mountain, who is truly God's son with all majesty and power. And so as we read what happens and, 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 and the, the dark uh, turn the gospel takes, we recognize it is not failure that we are reading, but sacrifice. It is the giving of the beloved one for our sins. Verse 9 is, to me, one of the most amazing verses in the gospel. Verse 9 says, 
And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. As they were coming down the mountain. Think about that. Jesus possesses all glory. The cloud comes down. God says to him, My beloved son, listen to him. He is in the company of Moses and Elijah only to show that he is superior and preeminent to all of these great saints of old. His glory, which has been with the Father in heaven for all time, has finally broken forth so that he is in unapproachable light. He is full of glory and beauty and the favor of God. And he came down the mountain. Why? Why leave this place of glory and beauty and magnificence where everything is as it should be? Why does he come down the mountain? He comes down the mountain for you and me. He comes down the mountain to face the rejection, to face the cross, to face the tomb. Because he has chosen to come down the mountain to save us. You see, our hope of glory, our hope of standing before God approved is because Christ came down the mountain to suffer many things and die. How great is our need? Go back last week to verse uh, chapter 8, verse 37, where Jesus says to, to the disciples, what can a man give in return for his soul? What can man give in return for his soul? What's the point of that? He's saying, you've failed it. Your soul has failed it. Instead of reflecting the divine image, your soul reflects sin and idolatry, and it has forfeited every possibility of glory, every possibility of communion. And so great is the failure of your soul that there is nothing in this world that can redeem it. There is nothing in this world that can make it right. There is no bleach that can take the black and the red out of your stained soul. You are hopeless. And yet... There is something, there is someone who can redeem that soul. And the reason our soul can be redeemed is because that one who had done no wrong, who possessed all glory within himself, came down the mountain. Not for himself, he had nothing at the bottom of that mountain, but but shame and suffering but because your soul needed to be redeemed and the only thing that could redeem your soul was a king's ransom. The Son of God came down the mountain. How great is this gift 
Listen to how Paul describes it in Philippians. Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Not for himself. He was equal with God the Father. He belonged in the eternal fellowship of God the Father. But he came down the mountain so that we could be lifted up. He exchanged the Shekinah, the glory of God's dwelling place, the the Mount of Transfiguration, to go down into our shame, to take upon our shame, to be clothed in our insults and our spit as he hung on the cross to bear the shame, to be stripped. He who was clothed in glory was stripped in shame. And why? Because in doing that, he can take our shame away and clothe us in his glory. It is because he came down that we are able to finish in glory. Here's a a, a startling passage. We look at this transfiguration with bewilderment and awe, but here's what we are told by the Apostle John in 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. Now, because Christ has come down the mountain, has died on the cross for us, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But... We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Do you recognize that the transfiguration, which is Christ's alone because of the gospel, we become partners in it. We become sharers in this glory. We become inheritors of this kingdom with power. We will be like him in glory. And why? Because he came down the mountain. The gospel is not come up the mountain, do what you have to take, live righteously, earn it. The gospel is he came down the mountain to bring us into glory. He left glory to take on shame. The gospel is Jesus came down to bring us to to heaven. So the second comfort, the first comfort, we will finish in glory. The second comfort, because Christ came down, we live by faith. We live by faith. And here we we see what happens when Jesus has come down the mountain. He uh, enters into a a major uh, conflict, an argument between his disciples and the scribes. And they're fighting back and forth. We don't know exactly what they're, they're saying to one another. But it's evident that what has happened while Jesus was with the three up at the top of the mountain, that the nine disciples down below were failing it spectacularly. Big time failing it. A huge crowd had come around and have watched these disciples become absolutely incapable of doing what they thought they could do. They were going to cast out a demon. They have been casting out demons since Jesus has been uh, leading them around. And here they are, unable to cast out this demon in in this boy, and the whole crowd is coming around, and they're having to fight 
to justify themselves for why they have failed to accomplish what everybody had seen them do. They are failing spectacularly. Jesus is even being impugned because of their incompetence. Look again at verses 17 and 18. Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he is a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Do you see what's happening I brought my son to you. When, when the man with the, unclean, the child with the unclean spirit brought his son to Jesus' disciples, he said, I was bringing my son to you. Your disciples represent you. And they were not able to help my son. They failed. And the name of Christ, the name of Jesus, is now attached to this failure. What happened? What happened down here? All this failure in such a short amount of time. I think the key to what what is behind all of this failure is in verse 29. Look at verse 29 with me. Jesus, after they asked, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. But prayer, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is Jesus' final word on why the disciples had the spectacular failure. This kind of demon cannot be cast out by anything but prayer. What does that mean? These disciples have been down there doing ministry without prayer. Prayer wasn't involved in this failure. And that is the reason that Jesus points to The failure being in prayer. You see, the disciples were down here and they were working upon their own strength and their own past successes. They had cast out demons before. Why can't they cast out demons now? They'd been successful. This was their area of giftedness. This was their area of success. And as they try to cast out this demon, they have become so confident that they don't pray about it. They're not in prayer about casting out this demon. Well, when there's no prayer, it means that the disciples were down there doing ministry with no reliance on God. They were doing ministry by uh, an absence of faith. They were doing it within themselves. They were not living by faith. I think this reminds us today that our prayer life is a real window into our faith life. The stuff that you pray about is the stuff that you think you need faith for. The stuff that you don't pray about is the stuff that you implicitly say, I got this. I'm okay without prayer here. It does reveal what we're living by. Are we living by faith? Are we living by our own power? Or are we trying to make some odd Frankensteinian merger between the two? I give God the hard stuff or I give God the stuff I don't want to do, but I'll take care of these parts. There is a real revelation about our faith life if we look at what it is we pray about and how important prayer is. Jesus is saying in this statement in verse 29 that prayer brings Christ into our situations. 
They were trying to minister at the bottom of the mountain away from Christ and without Christ. That prayer was not involved, it reveals that they, uh, uh, the prayer was not involved, and it reveals that they did not feel the need to have Christ in this situation. But when we pray, and this is the beautiful thing that we have to remember about prayer is bringing Christ into our situations. Christ is in our situations, in our prayers. He is there with us. Now, the, the, the question I guess I, I've always had as I look at this passage, uh, is this an accident that this happened? Jesus took three up the top of the mountain. He left nine at the bottom. Is this an accident? Did this go wrong in Jesus' plan? All this stuff down at the bottom, did it happen because Jesus wasn't there? Jesus wasn't in control of those nine because he was invested with the top of the mountain. Well, if we, if we recognize what's going on here, there's no accident here at all. Jesus left the nine at the bottom just as intentionally as he took the three up the mountain. He left them at the bottom of the mountain knowing what was going to happen. He allowed them to fail. Why? Why does Jesus allow these nine at the bottom of the mountain to fail, to experience this disaster? Because they had to learn this. They had to learn that they have to live by faith. And they were not going to learn to live by faith if Jesus was constantly with them all the time. They had to see that when they try to live by their own power, they court failure. That when they are not with Jesus, they must continue to rely on Jesus. They must continue to seek Jesus by prayer. I I think the disciples reveal a a major trap of the Christian life. Um, You know, we, we, we believe the gospel for our salvation. We believe the gospel for our eternity. But when it comes to our day-to-day life, that's ours. That's, that's in our power. That's, that success is up to us. Jesus wants us to recognize that when we have the gospel, when we live by faith, we don't simply live in the gospel. We live out the gospel. We trust the gospel for our day-to-day lives. Jesus is our Lord and Savior. Lord, not just over our souls, but Lord over our lives. And so as as the disciples are here learning that they have to live by faith, we are to be taught the same thing. To live by faith means to live by prayer and to live in reliance to Christ day in and day out. And that's... That's where we see the difference between the Nailit view of, of the world and the gospel view of the world. Because Christ came down. He knew this was at the bottom. But Christ came down to his disciples in the midst of their failure. They're failing. Jesus could have gone down the other side of the mountain. <laughs> could have stayed up there. But Jesus came down the mountain to come into their failure. He doesn't come into their failure to judge them, but to make it right. 
Jesus comes down the mountain to enter their failure, to make it right. My friends, that's the gospel. Jesus has come down into our mess, into our brokenness, into our disaster, into our failures to make it right. We are failing God's perfect law daily. Daily. How many of us can claim that we have loved God with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength today? No, we, we fail. We fail it daily. We are struggling. We recognize as we, as we look into our, our lives in those quiet moments that regardless of how we make it appear, there's brokenness in us. There's failure in us that we cannot get out of. There is shame deep in us. We, we look at the messes in our life and, and sometimes we just use the word they're unfixable. And that is the truth from the law's perspective. Romans chapter 3 verses 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not a single one of us is going to pull it out. When we stand before God with our lives, our accomplishments, we are not going to stand before God and be approved. We're going to be marked, failed it. But that is not what the gospel leaves us with. The gospel came to us. Christ came down because he knows that we all fall short of the glory of God. We are all, in a classic sense, needing a a do-over. You know what a do-over is, right? Just forget about all that. Let's, let's do it over. Let's start over and have a fresh start. We all need a do-over. But if we're honest, even with a do-over, it's just a matter of time before we need another one. The gospel is this. Jesus is our do-over. And he's a perfect do-over. He came down to make sinners right with God. And he makes us right with God by faith alone. Meaning it's not something that you have to add to. It's not something you have to build upon. He makes you righteous before God by faith alone. He comes down the mountain. He fixes the disciples' mistakes. He fixes how the disciples have ruined the situation. And he does the same thing for us. By faith alone, when we trust in Christ, all of his righteousness, all of his perfection, all of his beauty and completion becomes ours. It's like marriage. Imagine that you're coming into marriage with an incredible amount of debt that you can never pay for. But the person that you're marrying, lucky you, is so rich that when your debt is attached to that wealth, it disappears like a drop in the bucket. That's what faith alone in Christ is. We come with ridiculous debt and ridiculous mistakes, but we are attached, we are united to the one who is perfect and radiant and able to cover all sins and all mistakes so that when we are united to him, We are seen perfect in God's eyes. We are clothed 
in his righteousness. And how do we receive that? We receive that not by earning it, but by receiving it freely by faith, by trusting in Christ alone to be your do-over, to be the one who, who makes right your mistakes, who makes you right before God. That is what we have, and we have that because Christ came down. Because Christ came down, we live by faith. Third, we've seen that because Christ came down, we will finish in glory. We've seen that because Christ came down, we live by faith. And third, because Christ came down, despair will be overturned. Despair will be overturned. And here we focus on the story of the father and the boy. And we recognize how deep and seemingly unending this man and this child's despair has become. This this dad has this boy who's been tormented by a demon and he, he comes to Jesus desperate. In fact, so desperate, he doesn't even know if he should be there. He, is, he has gotten to the point of, of doubting even the possibility that there could be hope. The despair, I can count four different dimensions. It's personal. He says, this is my boy. My boy. I've watched suffer. Uh, It's prolonged. How long has this situation been this way? From childhood. These These are years of watching my boy suffer with no remedy. We see the situation is overpowering. Often this boy, because of this unclean spirit, is being cast into fire and cast into water to destroy him. Do you know what that means? It means that this father is having to run to the fire to grab his boy out and having to run to the well to to pull his boy up because this demon is continually trying to destroy him. Can you imagine the haunt and horror on this man's life? He cannot be away from his child for fear that at any moment he'll be thrown off a cliff. He'll be thrown into fire, and if he's not there, he'll be destroyed. He's just waiting for the day that he's not there. And he's defeated. He's heard this news. It's been chattering all through uh, the marketplaces, all through the towns. There's someone out there who can cast out demons and heal blind people and heal deaf people. There's someone out there. You just got to find him. If you find him, he'll take care of everything. And so he does. He He takes his boy and he goes as far and as wide as he needs to to find Jesus. He finds the disciples and they blow it. The one, the one place that he's supposed to be saved and solved, blown it. So shattered is he that he finally comes to Jesus out of the crowd 
And he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, if you can do anything, the despair of this man's life and circumstances has gotten him to the place where he doesn't even know if faith makes sense. If you can do anything. Jesus takes that question and he hears the despair and he says to him, if, if, All things are possible for him who believes. Jesus wants this man who is in blackest despair to know this, that the faith that we put in him, the faith that we put in God through his son Jesus Christ never needs to be doubted. It is not because of the power of our faith. Our faith, I know week in and week out, ebbs and flows. And I know some weeks our faith is barely there. The despair seems to win. But what Jesus wants this man to know and us to know through him is it is not the power of our faith. It is the power of God. It is not a great faith that saves us. It is faith in a great God. Even a little bit of faith in a great God is going to be enough because it is God where all things are possible. Now when we say all things, it is popular in our modern culture to twist that into self-serving materialistic ends and see in verses like this an opportunity to pray for a better car or to pray for uh, uh, blessings of health in our lives. And it's also possible to take this story and in our own despair say, why hasn't my prayer been answered already? And to experience questions. So we need to recognize that when Jesus tells the man that all things are possible for him who believes, that all things is not All that I want, that all things is not having it when you want it, that all things is a trust that God is good and never limited, that we can trust his power and goodness to always do what is right, that because we have faith in God who is all wise and all good, we know that despair is not the end. And so when he says, if, the man cries out, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Jesus answers this prayer for him and for us by showing us in this passage, he will never disappoint. He casts out the demon, but the boy looks dead. In fact, the people say, he's dead. And what does Jesus do? He takes the boy by the hand and lifts him up. The language in this verse echoes precisely the language of resurrection. Remember in chapter 5 when he takes the little girl and pulls her up. And in the resurrection of Christ, we recognize that he himself is lifted up. What we are being shown here 
is that Christ is Lord over death itself. And even if our hopes go into the grave, he will lift us out of the grave. There is the resurrection in Christ. And because we have Christ, we have resurrection. You see, Christ teaches us that the, in, that the gospel is this. Death can't win. In Christ, death can't win. Even if for a day, even if for a season, it appears to have the power, in Christ, death can't win. He will take the hand and lift you up. And so Jesus has come down the mountain right into this man's despair. Do you recognize that? He came down to the man. The man in his despair, Jesus came down into it. He didn't avoid it. He didn't skirt it. He didn't leave it to the disciples. He went down to the man. He went into his despair. And that is the gospel. Christ comes down into the deepest, darkest hole of our despair on the cross. He cries the only words of despair that cannot be remedied. Eloi, Eloi. Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus endured the outer darkness. He endured the forsakenness of the Father so that none of us who put our faith in him ever have to worry about being separated from the love of God in Christ. Jesus coming down means that our despair cannot separate us from his love and power. And so as we struggle with despair, we hold fast to Christ, knowing that despair will be overturned. We will be lifted up. Death can't win. So as we look at these three comforts, Christ came down, we will finish in glory. Because Christ came down, we will live by faith. Because Christ came down, despair will be overturned. We recognize that as we live in a world that wants to mark our failures, as we live in fear of standing before the judge on the last day, that in the gospel, we have no need of that fear. Christ came down. Christ came to you, and he comes to you now. This is the gospel told to us in a slightly different way in Romans chapter 10. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will go up into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will go down into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. My friends, this is the gospel. Christ came down. And because he came down, you will be brought into glory. Put your faith in him. Despair will not win. 
Let us pray. Father, it is amazing the gospel that we have. We thank you for sending your son to be born in a manger, to die on a cross, to lay in a tomb. We thank you that Christ came down, that we might be made right, that we might be reconciled, that we might have peace and love and power dwelling in us that assures us that nothing that this world can take it away, no despair that this world can cast upon us can succeed. Because in your gospel you came down that we would be lifted up and raised up and held up and never forsaken. Father, I pray that if anyone here has not trusted in that gospel, that you would draw them now, that you would draw them to place their faith in Christ, that you would allow these three comforts to dwell in their hearts as they learn to live by you and for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.